look at everything that he's come up with, the conclusions that he's come to, you know, as he looks back on his life and he's kind of taken stock of everything he's seen, everything that he's done, because if we do that, if we just skip to the end, then we miss out on an entire book that's just filled with, with practical and spiritual wisdom. So it's good that we're going through this. It's good that we're walking through this book. And when we get to the, the end of what we're doing this morning, we're going to be halfway through Ecclesiastes. So I want to kind of reset a little bit on, on Solomon, on the guy that, that wrote this book, right? If, if there was anybody that was qualified to write this book, it was him. It was Solomon. First Kings chapter 3 tells us, right, that when he took over as king of Israel for his father David, and, and God told him that he could have whatever he wanted, whatever he wished for, Solomon, very wisely, asked for wisdom to be able to lead God's people, right? And, and, and God was faithful to his promise. And we know that same chapter tells us that he became the wisest man who would ever walk on the face of this earth. So that's great reason for us to pay attention to what he has to say, right? The Bible tells us that kings and queens and leaders from all over the world came to Jerusalem to sit at his feet and to listen to him, to spend time with him. Right? I mean, the, the Jewish historian Josephus even wrote about Solomon and, and made note of the fact that his fame just spread throughout the world. Um, and so the stories about him were just so incredible, so unbelievable that people had to come see for themselves. They had to come hear for themselves. And we're benefiting from the same thing as we walk through this. So again, if there was any, if there was ever a person who had unlimited resources, who had everything he ever wanted, who's tried everything that this world has to offer, it was Solomon. But even with all of his wisdom, even with all of the practical insight on life that this guy had, we know from his book here that he failed to heed his own advice. He, he got into this downward spiral <coughs> that he just never got out of. And so as he is nearing the end of his life here and he's looking back, his goal with this book is to spare future generations, to spare us, right, from falling for the same lies and from making the same mistakes that he did. He is, he is wanting to free us from the constant pursuit of, of power and approval and money and knowledge and pleasure and work and popularity and all of these things that he's saying are meaningless, worthless, apart from God. So, again, we would do well to listen to what he has to say. So we're going to pick up uh, right where Britain left off last week. We're going to be in chapter 5 in Ecclesiastes, if you want to go ahead that way. And we're going to pick up in verse 8. We're going to go all the way through the end of 5, and we're going to cover chapter 6 this morning. That whole section is, is one topic that Solomon is going to deal with. And it is one of the biggest enti enticements that this life has to offer money or, or riches. Now, we know that he's already touched on this topic a few times so far, but as we get into this passage, uh, starting in 5.8, going through the end of 6, there he is going to completely expose the pursuit of the almighty dollar as just being completely empty. My NIV that I'm going to be reading out of this morning says meaningless. If you're looking at the ESV there, it says vanity, Right? I want to make sure that you understand what that, that word vanity means there because when we think of vanity, we usually think of somebody that spends way too much time in front of the mirror, right? Or it's, 
maybe a little bit too caught up in their achievements and their accomplishments, but vanity can also mean worthlessness, pointless. And that's what the meaning is here uh, in the book of Ecclesiastes that Solomon keeps using over and over again. So we know he was very wise, but is he qualified to speak to us this morning about money and riches? Oh my gosh. (laughs) This man had a fleet of ships that sailed all over the world for commerce and trading, bringing back gold and silver and ivory and exotic animals. All of these visitors that came to sit at his feet brought gifts. The kings and queens and leaders, uh, all of his admirers, they brought more gold and silver and clothing and weapons and spices and horses and chariots and mules. Uh, We know that all of the kingdoms that he ruled over brought tribute to him. We know that he placed a, a heavy tax burden on his own people. So over and above all of that stuff, the Bible tells us that he received over 25 tons of gold every year. Now, if you do the you do the conversion there from the talent that the Bible uses, it's the weight of money in the Bible, to the troy ounces and to how much an ounce of gold is worth today, you do the math, it comes out to about $1.1 billion of gold every year. Solomon reigned for 40 years, so I'll let you do that math. Not only was he the wisest person to ever live, it's pretty safe to say that he was probably the richest person who would ever live on the face of this earth. So so if if the richest man who ever lived, who had more than any of us ever could even imagine having, is looking back on his life and imparting wisdom to us about money and riches, this is the guy we need to be listening to, isn't it? So, yeah, he's... He's qualified, and I want to share another verse that he wrote in the book of Proverbs in chapter 13. This is what the same guy who had it all said. Blessed is the man who finds wisdom, the man who gains understanding, for she is more profitable than silver and yields better returns than gold. That's a clue as to where we're going this morning with where he ends up. So let's get into the text, chapter 5. We'll start with verses 8 and 9. And again, I'm reading out of the NIV. If you see the poor oppressed in a district and justice and rights denied, don't be surprised at such things, for one official is eyed by a higher one, and over them both are are others higher still. The increase from the land is taken by all. The king himself profits from the field. So as he begins this section on wealth here, he actually goes back to a theme that he spoke about in the previous chapter, and that is the oppression of the poor. And... Sadly, this is kind of a reality of life under the sun, right? And we might expect him here to tell us what to do about it, but all he does is simply say that we shouldn't be surprised that this kind of thing happens, right? He's he's describing here kind of a bloated bureaucracy, right? Just layer after layer after layer of government officials who, who all want their cut. Sound familiar? Some things never change, as he tells us, right? The more levels of bureaucracy, the easier it is for for corruption to creep into the system. And again, sadly, the ones who end up bearing the consequences of this type of abuse are the poor. Now, he isn't saying to excuse this injustice. He's just reminding us that we live in a fallen, sinful world that's full of greedy people. That's all he's doing here. And and verse 9 is is a little bit difficult to translate. There are some who think that Solomon is actually injecting irony 
here, and he's kind of pointing out that even in a corrupt bureaucratic system, everybody still needs to eat. Everybody needs what that farmer is producing, right? Even the king needs to eat. Everybody is dependent on the farmer raising his crops. Other people kind of take a more negative view here that this is another reference to taxation with the king being part of the corruption problem, right? The farmer doesn't get the full benefit of his labor because the government bureaucrats all want their piece of the pie. And so uh, this is something else that Solomon pointed out in the, in the previous chapter in verse 4, right? The, the love of money and man's envy generates greed and causes oppression and injustice. So he's just repeating that here. He, he not only wants to show us that living for wealth hurts other people, right? What he's about to point out here is that it's not as wonderful and amazing as we think it might be. So let's keep going. Verses 10 through 12. Whoever loves money never has money enough. Whoever loves wealth is never satisfied with his income. This, too, is meaningless. As goods increase, so do those who consume them. And what benefit are they to the owner except to feast his eyes on them? The sleep of a laborer is sweet, whether he eats little or much, but the abundance of a rich man permits him no sleep. Again, Solomon knew better than anybody else that those who chase after money are never going to be satisfied. And he gives us three warnings here in these three verses that we just read. Verse 10, the first warning here is the more money you have, the more money you want. John D. Rockefeller was the first billionaire in the U.S. back in the early 1900s. And, and he was asked a question about how much money is enough. And his response was, just a little bit more. So if, if that guy, <laughs> the richest man in the U.S. at that time, if that's his attitude, a lot of us are there. The author of Hebrews in chapter 13, verse 5, he gives us a warning. Very applicable to this. He says, keep your life free from love of money and be content with what you have. Chances are, folks, if you are not content with what you have right now, whatever that is, you may never be satisfied. You may never be content with what you have. If, if money is a God for you, then it's just going to keep feeding your desire for more and more and more. So that's his first warning to us. The more money you have, the more money you're going to want. His second, his second warning is in verse 11 then. It says, the more money you have, the more people who want it. <laughs> right? The, the more money you have, the more expenses you have, the more your expenses increase, the more stuff that you have to take care of, the more things that you have to manage, right? You, you get to a certain point, and now all of a sudden you need maids and butlers and nannies and gardeners and chauffeurs and accountants and business managers and, and everything else, right, to help take care of this empire that you're building, right? The, so the point is that just, you know, as, as quickly as it comes in, it's going to go right back out because your expenses just keep increasing, and then, then we've all read stories about these people who win the lottery, right? Their names get out there, and all of a sudden, all these family members that they've never heard of, right, are coming out of the woodwork. They want their, want, they want their piece, you know, and all these best friends that you haven't had contact with in decades are showing up on your door saying, hey, what's up, man? Good to see you again. How's it going? Handouts. <laughs> all the 
All the nonprofits are putting you on their fundraising lists and bombarding you with donation requests. Right? It, it's it's not ever going to end because now you know you 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 have arrived. You've got something. So he's saying, as quickly as it comes, the wealth can be consumed just as quickly. So the more you have, <laughs> more people who want it. The third warning he gives us in verse 12 there, he says, the more money you have, the less rest you have. Again, the more you have, the more you have to worry about, the more you have to keep up with, right? And the more you have to worry, the less sleep you're going to get. He says there, the, the laborer who works for the rich man, who is content with what he has, he sleeps good, right? He's, he's satisfied with putting in a hard day's work and going home in peace, but not so much the rich man, right? He's got he's to pay attention to his portfolio. He's got to watch the stock market. He's got to make sure that he has enough people hired, right, to manage everything that he's got going on, all of his endeavors. He's got to deal with all of these people who are looking for handouts all the time. It never ends. So Solomon exposes yet another lie here of money and riches, right? We like to think that when we get to a certain level, when, when we reach that, that level of income that we, we've targeted, the, boy, when I get there, I'm, I'm, I've arrived, I'm set, I'm good, right? And we think that's going to bring peace, and we think that's going to bring security. We think it's going to bring leisure. Like, <laughs> I can just kind of chill and just sit back and enjoy. I'm going to get rest. Well, the guy who had a lot more than you and me is sitting here saying it's just the opposite, right? Riches are going to bring more work and more stress and more worry and less sleep. So the more we have, the more we have to worry about. The more we have, the less rest we're going to get. He has a couple more warnings for us here. Pick up in verse 13 going through 17. He says, I have seen a grievous evil under the sun, wealth to the harm of its owner, or wealth lost through some misfortune, so that when he has a son, there's nothing left for him. Naked a man comes from his mother's womb, and as he comes, so he departs. He takes nothing from his labor that he can carry in the same. And then the verse 16 says, this too is a grievous evil. A man comes, as a man comes, so he departs. And what does he gain since he toils for the wind? All his days he eats in darkness with great frustration, affliction, and anger. Wow. So in verses 13 and 14 there, he tells us the more money you have, the more you have to lose. If you have a $20 bill in your wallet and you lose that, that's pretty painful. At least it is for me. You have a thousand dollars in that wallet, and you lose that. Oh my gosh, that's excruciating. <laughs> He's telling us a story here of a wealthy man who lost everything in a bad business deal. He was rich, but because he was greedy, because enough is never enough, he very recklessly risked everything. Instead of his ship coming in, it ended up sinking. This father who was supposed to be a steward building into and for the next generation, he blew it, right? And he ended up with nothing to be able to pass on to his son. Solomon tells us this is a grievous evil when things like this happen. So the more money you have, the more money you have to lose. And then in 15 through 17, he tells us the more money you have, the more you leave behind. 
death is the great equalizer, is it not? No matter how much wealth you accumulate in this life, there is going to come a point when none of that is going to do you any good because you ain't here no more. He says there, naked a man comes from his mother's womb, and as he comes, so he departs. That's Solomon's way of saying you can't take it with you. We all know that's true, right? You guys have heard that saying that you don't ever see a hearse pulling a U-Haul trailer on the way to the cemetery. Right? You can't take it with you. I don't know if you remember the, the bumper sticker you used to see uh, <coughs> a ways back, I won't say how long, that said, he who, win, who, he who dies with the most toys wins, right? That was the first bumper sticker. I think somebody kind of got a hold of that and, and realized that wasn't quite right, so they did fix it. And then the bumper sticker that you started seeing after that was, he who dies with the most toys still dies. Yeah. That you can't take it with you, right? It, what Solomon is saying here is, even though wealth is fleeting and it doesn't last, we spend so many of our days in darkness just obsessing over it. And, and what he says that leads to at the end there of verse 17, it says it's just, it's frustration. It's just, it's sickness from being stressed and worrying all the time. It's anger when things don't work out the way that you had hoped or the way that you had planned. Paul echoes this same thing in his first letter to Timothy in chapter 6, verses 7 and 8. He says, we brought nothing into this world and we can take nothing out of it, but if we have food and clothing, we will be content with that. So that's the last of his warnings here. The more you have, the more you leave behind. And as he finishes up chapter 5 here, these last few verses, it sounds really good. Really what he's trying to do here is just make the best of a bad situation. So pick up in verse 18 there through the end of the chapter. Then I realized that it is good and proper for a man to eat and drink and to find satisfaction in the toilsome labor under the sun during the few days of life God has given him, for this is his lot. Moreover, when God gives any man wealth and possessions and enables him to enjoy them, to accept his lot and be happy in his work, this is a gift from God. He seldom reflects on the days of his life because God keeps him occupied with gladness of heart. So it, what Solomon's basically saying here is just, you know, the best I, thing I can come up with is just focus on contentment and enjoyment. Right? He tells us it's good and proper for us to enjoy the fruit of our labor, and it is. That's not bad advice. Right? The lifespan that God gives to each one of us here on this earth is short. And every day we should see as a gift, right, that, that he's given to us. And gifts are meant to be enjoyed. But what we understand is the power to be able to enjoy what we have, whether it's much or whether it's little, that comes from God. If you love the Lord and you trust in him completely and you serve him, your days will be full. Life without the Lord is empty regardless of what you have. People try to fill that hole in their heart with money, with stuff, with activities. <coughs> but we're being told here, again, by the man who had it all, that none of that is ever going to satisfy us. You're always going to want more. I really like what uh, Agur had to say in Proverbs chapter 30. 
one of the few chapters that wasn't written by Solomon. He says this, Two things I ask of you, O Lord, do not refuse me before I die. One, keep falsehood and lies from me. And two, give me neither poverty nor riches, but give me only my daily bread. Because he says, otherwise I may have too much and disown you and say, who is the Lord? Or I may become poor and steal and so dishonor the name of my God. I think he had it right. Just give me what I need, not too much and not too little. Paul said it as well in Philippians 4, verse 12. He says, I know what it is to be in need, and I know what it is to have plenty. He experienced both. I have learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. So even though this is still Solomon's under-the-sun perspective here, we understand that when we are content with what we have, that money no longer becomes a God for us. We recognize it as a resource that we can use for God's kingdom and for his glory. So Solomon here with his under-the-sun perspective is basically saying, however much God gives you in this life, the best thing that you can do is just enjoy it and be content with what you have. Okay. Chapter 6, this, uh, this may be the bleakest, most despairing and darkest passage in this book. But we're going to do it anyway. <laughs> we're not going to skip it. All right, so let, let's, let's work through this. Verses 1 and 2 in chapter 6. I have seen another evil under the sun, and it weighs heavily on men. God gives a man wealth, possessions, and honor so that he lacks nothing his heart desires, but God doesn't enable him to enjoy them. And a stranger enjoys them instead. This is meaningless a grievous evil. So he tells us another story here, and this one's worse than the one that we just looked at in chapter 5 because this guy had everything. He had the money, he had the possessions, but he also had honor. There's a lot of us that would sign up for a life like that. I would, right? But for whatever reason, and we're not told why, God does not allow this man to enjoy everything that he has. How tragic. To get everything you ever wanted in this life and then not be able to enjoy it. Maybe Solomon is looking back on his own life here. Kind of sounds like it to me. He says this man is cursed. Unfulfilled, miserable all of his days, and then everything he was blessed with goes to somebody he doesn't even know. One thing this does tell us, folks, is that the ability to enjoy what God has given us is truly a blessing. That is yet another gift from God. We need to keep that in mind. All right, 3 through 6 there in chapter 6. A man may have a hundred children and live many years, yet no matter how long he lives, if he cannot enjoy his prosperity and does not receive proper burial, I say that a stillborn child is better off than he. It comes without meaning. It departs in darkness, and in darkness its name is shrouded. Though it never saw the sun or knew anything, it has more rest than does this man. Even if he lives a thousand years twice over but fails to enjoy his prosperity, do not all go to the same place. And by the same place there, he's not talking about heaven or hell. He's just talking about we're, we're all going to die. We're all going to end up 16 under. That's the same place we all end up in. 
There in verse 3, you know, if there is such a thing as the American dream, well, he's describing the Israeli dream there, right? This guy had everything that an ancient Israelite would want to have. He had long life and he had lots of kids. Those were the two most important things, right? But again, for whatever reason, this guy is unable to enjoy all of his prosperity, and apparently he didn't spend enough time with all of these kids that God blessed him with, to where when he passed away, his kids didn't even care enough to honor him with a proper burial. Solomon calls this a grievous evil as well. So he's, he's looking at these first two stories here in chapter 6, and he compares these scenarios to a stillborn child. A baby who never sees the light of day, he says, has more peace and more rest than a wealthy and prosperous man who does not get to enjoy all that he has been given. That's a pretty bitter statement, isn't it? That's like something that we would expect from somebody who suffered kind of like Job did, but yet here is Solomon, right, with all of his blessings, all of his prosperity, all of his riches. He clearly knew the same despair that Job experienced. And, oh my gosh, you know, life is so meaningless that he felt like it would be better off if he had never been born. That's what he's saying here. I mean, how sad to look back on your life and land there. Keeps going, 7 through 9. All man's efforts are for his mouth, yet his appetite is never satisfied. What advantage has a wise man over a fool? What does a poor man gain by knowing how to conduct himself before others? Better what the eyes see than the roving of the appetite. This, too, is meaningless, a chasing after the wind. He's kind of describing a perpetual treadmill here, if you will, just a, a constant trying to satisfy our appetites, our, our cravings, our desires. We always want what we don't have, right? Those things that we chase, as soon as we obtain something, as soon as we make it, we get that thing that we wanted, then what happens? Set it over here, and I'm heading for the next one, right? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to move on to the next thing, whatever that next big thing is, right? While it's certainly better for us to live wisely than it is for us to live foolishly, what he's saying here is that wisdom itself can't fill a hungry stomach. Right? For, for all of the superiority of the wise man compared to the fool, they both get hungry. The basic necessities for both of these guys is the same. They're both susceptible to sickness. They're both susceptible to disease. They're, as he already said, they're both going to die at some point. The, the poor man, he even says, he can make all the strides he wants towards prosperity, but ultimately his fate is going to be the same as that rich guy that he's, he's trying to become like. So he's just saying instead of being content with what we have, with all the things that are right in front of us that we can see, that we can touch, that we can use, there is just this constant striving for more, for the things that we don't have. And you can just hear the regret in Solomon's words. Here. He recognizes, I think, that all of his striving, it was a waste of time, it was a waste of effort, right? And he compares it to chasing after the wind. I love that statement in this book. This is the wisest man who ever lived, and this is what he came up with in trying to compare all of these pursuits, all of these things that we strive after, right? And, and he's trying to make us, help us understand how meaningless and empty and pointless these things are, right? Have you ever done that? I mean, we have an abundance of this thing called wind here in, in Texas. You can go outside pretty much any day right now, 
and uh, and give this a shot. I, I I say go for it. You know, go go chase the wind and, and see if you can catch it. Your neighbors might kind of think you're a little weird that they see you out there doing that, but hey, it's it's a it's a great exercise. You know, hashtag pointless. That's where he's going with this. It's just this constant striving, guys. It's not going to take you anywhere. It's not going to get you what you want. It's not going to satisfy. Let's take a look at his last last thoughts on this subject, verses 10 through 12 there at the end of chapter 6. Whatever exists has already been named, and what man is has been known. No man can contend with one who is stronger than he. The more the words, the less the meaning, and how does that profit anyone? For who knows what is good for a man in life during the few and meaningless days that he passes through like a shadow? Who can tell him what will happen under the sun after he's gone? Again, these verses here kind of mark the halfway point in the book of Ecclesiastes, and and it kind of summarizes the whole first half of the book. If Solomon has said it once, he's said it several times, there is nothing new under the sun. Everything that you think you're doing has already been done. Everything that you're trying has been tried. Everything that you're striving for, people have already strived for that. Some of them even got there. Right? He says what God has decreed for sinful man is what it is. The human condition (laughs) is what it is. It hasn't changed since the garden. God told Adam what would happen if he sinned, and it, it is what it is. God's in control. He has already established his plan. And this was a great source of frustration for Solomon. He recognized that man is man and that God is God and we cannot successfully contend with the one who is mightier than us all. He says you can whine and complain and argue all you want with God. And there are plenty of people who do. Who think I'm going to straighten him out. I'm going to tell him a thing or two. (laughs) I think Solomon probably went there. And so, again, he's looking back and saying, you know what? The more whining and complaining and arguing that you try to do with God, the more meaningless it becomes. And he points out there in verse 12 that we like to think that we know what's best for us. We know what's good for me, better even than God. But do we really? Do we really? Which is better in this life, wealth or poverty? Health or sickness? Fame or obscurity? You may think those are pretty easy questions to answer, but are they really? You think about people who have what is commonly thought of as good, and we start to realize that they aren't the better for it. How many professional athletes or artists or musicians or movie stars, rich and famous people that w- we look at and think, wow, how awesome would that be? They, they, I mean, they've got it all. They've got everything, right? Only to see these people take their own lives. And we're just sitting there, wait, 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 what? I remember thinking that with Robin Williams. Just brilliant actor. Just about everything he did, I just thought was amazing. Even go all the way back to Mork and Mindy, for those of you who remember that show. Oh, my gosh. Just, you know, and you think everybody loves this guy. Everything he touches turns to gold. You know, he's famous. 
Jesus said, he's, he's got it all. And then the same thing happens, and you're like, you know, I think we start to realize that maybe some of that lifestyle isn't all that it's cracked up to be, all that we think that it is. And what Solomon is saying here, guys, is only God knows what's truly best for you and me. But we've got to trust in him. Whether it's much, whether it's little, we trust that God knows us. He created us. He knows what's best for us. So we've heard the under-the-sun perspective from, from Solomon this morning. So what do we do with this? What's the eternal perspective for us this morning? If you have spent much time at all in the New Testament, then you have seen how much Jesus addressed the subject of money. <laughs> a lot. And he did it as much as he did because our money exposes our heart. Does it not? Yeah. Again, the man who had more of it than probably anybody else ever will is telling us that the love of money and pursuing that as your life's goal is never going to bring you satisfaction. Enough is never going to be enough. So this morning, the point becomes, will we listen? This is the expert. Will we listen? Will we take an honest look at our lives and see if we are focused on storing up treasures for ourselves on this earth where Jesus says Roth and moth and rust will destroy and thieves are going to break in and steal? Or are we using all of our time and our resources for eternal purposes and storing up for ourselves riches in heaven where moth and rust do not destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. Right after that, Jesus said, for where your treasure is, there your heart is also. Our money exposes our hearts. The richest man who ever lived again here is warning us not to get caught up in the prosperity rat race. He says it doesn't lead to anywhere good. You don't need to keep up with the Joneses. Don't worry about the Joneses. Forget the Joneses, right? You don't need to keep up with them, and you don't need to keep trying to do things to keep them from catching them back up with you. Just <laughs> recognize, guys, recognize that what you have is what God has rightly decided is best for you. And then be content with that and learn to enjoy what God has given you. That's the best place that we can go. You know, wealth itself is not an evil thing. This is not a message to say, everybody be poor, give everything away, and just be part of the oppressed. No, it's wealth itself is not evil. It's the love of money that Scripture tells us is evil, right? The love of money is a temptation that we all have to deal with. You can have nothing and still be obsessed with it. I've been there. <laughs> I think Paul sums it up really, really well in his first letter again to Timothy, this time in chapter 6, verses 17 through 19. Listen to what he says. Command those who are rich in this present world not to be arrogant, nor to put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain. Sound familiar? But to put their hope in God, who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. Command them to do good, to be good, to be rich in good deeds, to be generous and willing to share. And in this way, they will lay up treasures for themselves as a firm foundation for the coming age. So that they can take hold of the life that is truly life. He's talking about eternal life there. 
So how can we escape the tyranny of money in our souls? We look to the cross of Christ. Guys, there's nothing wrong with planning for the future, but the future that we need to plan for the most, the future that's most important to us, is eternity. The only way to truly find peace and joy and contentment in this life, regardless of whether you have a lot or whether you just have a little bit, the only way is by God's gift of grace. We receive his gift of grace. We invite his son Jesus into our life. And and that not only prepares us for eternity, that gives us the eternal perspective that we need now Right to live rightly and to keep our priorities straight. And when we recognize that the present, the greatest thing in the present, the most valuable thing in the present is knowing God and being known by Him, when we get that, all these other pursuits in our lives are going to take on a lot less importance. And that includes pursuing money and riches. It just kind of fades into the background. So, if you've placed your hope in anything other than Jesus Christ, you can choose this morning to place your hope in Him and in Him alone, right? And you can be done with all of this frustration and sickness and worry and stress and anger and disappointment that Solomon keeps talking about that comes when we place our hope in things that this world says are important. God is the only one worthy of our hope, right? He is the only one worthy of our devotion. He is the only one who is never going to let us down. He's the only one who's never going to disappoint us. He's the only one who's never going to let us go. We can be known by him, and we can know him forever and ever. So if that's you this morning, if you know that you need that relationship with the Lord this morning, that's not something that you have, I invite you to come forward here in just a few moments when we sing and share that with me. I would love to pray with you help you understand what it means to have a relationship with Jesus Christ that will completely change your perspective on everything in this life. Everything in this life. And if you are somebody this morning that already has that relationship, then what I think the rest of us need to be thinking about this morning is if money or anything else for that matter has become a a little G-God for you, then that's something that we need to make right this morning. right? If we've lost sight of the fact that everything that we have is a gift from God that is meant to be used for His kingdom and for His glory, not for us and for our pleasure and our enjoyment, we can confess that to Him this morning as well and ask Him to help us to be able to view our resources rightly. So I don't know where you are this morning. I don't know how God has spoken to you with this, uh, whether you have issues with money or not, whether you have issues with anything else in your life that has kind of taken God's place and pushed him down your priority list a little bit. But I just invite you to respond however you need to this morning. Every time this book is opened and read and taught, it requires a response, does it not? Every time. So I don't know how God's dealing with you this morning. You might just need to sit there in your chair and pray to him. Talk to him this morning. You can come to the front. And kneel here at the steps if you want to do that. You can grab somebody in this room if you want to pray with them or have them pray for you. You can 
come up here to the front. Whatever you need to do this morning, you respond to the Lord as you feel him prompting you to do so this morning. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that we can have everything that, that, that this life has to offer through you. Lord, that, that we don't have to strive for the things that we think that we need or the things that we think are going to help us to get what we want and be in a place where we want to be, Lord. We, we put so many other things in front of you in our life. God, we pursue and pursue and pursue. Help us to listen to the wisdom that you have shared with us through this book this morning, God. To know who you are, to see the gift of life that you offer that surpasses no other, God, that, that gives us true life, both here and now and forevermore. So God, as you speak to our hearts this morning, help us to respond rightly before you, to acknowledge anything in our lives to you this morning that has taken your rightful place on the throne of our lives, and to have you help us reorder our lives this morning and put you first and keep you there. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I invite you to stand.